Some folks are saying, how long can I go on? Some folks are saying, how hard am I supposed to fight? Some people are just saying, um, what does it really matter? And, and the stakes are, are incredibly high today. And so let's, let's go to God's Word and let's figure out what God has to say on the matter. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Um, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, let's go back and let's let's unpack all of this. If you look at verse 3, it says that the Pharisees came to test Jesus. Um, this is the, the idea of the Pharisees was they wanted to trap Jesus saying something wrong so that they would have a reason to condemn him. And um, you all need to understand, this is no casual theological conversation. It's no casual theological question that they're coming up with. In youth ministry, you know, you could tell when a teenager really had a, um, a question that they wanted answered and when they were using a, a question as a smokescreen. And, and a lot of times you can tell that with adults as well. This was, this was no, I really want to know, Jesus, your opinion on it. They had their minds made up and they wanted to trap Jesus. Everyone listening knew this was a loaded question. And part of the problem was in Jesus' day in Judaism, there was this huge dispute about um, what were the biblical appropriate grounds for divorce. Jewish first century practice of divorce was based largely on this passage way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something objectionable about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away from his house, and then it goes on. If you read um, Deuteronomy 24, you'll see that that Moses does a lot of teaching about this. And he says, when is this appropriate? When is this not appropriate? And he talks a whole lot about divorce. But but where you get the idea of a certificate of divorce is from Deuteronomy 24.1. It mentions writing out this certificate of divorce. Now, in the Old Testament, if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he didn't have to go through the legal system. What he did was he sat down, took his pen, and he wrote out this letter. And basically, it, it contained the phrase, you are free. And that meant that, what that meant was... It was permission for the woman to remarry. She was free to remarry. And really what this whole concept was, was an, an attempt to uh, to protect women, to give them rights to be remarried. And you have to understand that, that in those days, um, women were considered property in many times, in many instances, and they could be dismissed without a word. And, and this way it was clear that she had legal status in the community and she could remarry again. And it was to protect her. Understand, it was to protect her. But only a husband could do this. This is this is big, important too. In the Jewish community, a woman could not divorce her husband. Only the husband could divorce the woman. And I'll show you why that's important in just a minute. Now, the phrase that caused so much trouble in that day was this phrase, um, something objectionable. It could be translated something um, indecent. And so uh, that leaves a lot of latitude for interpretation, doesn't it? Something indecent. Anybody, anybody, you know, can can you give me a definition of something indecent? It's kind of vague. And so these these rabbis 
and rabbis were the, the leaders of their day. They would interpret the scripture for all the common people. And so these rabbis had huge debates. And what we're going to look at today is the two prevailing um, rabbi schools of thought. And they're almost complete opposites on this idea of what is something objectionable, what is something indecent. The two rabbis, one was uh, Shimei, and he was quite strict on this question. And his school of thought, his writings, because that's what the rabbis would do, they would write all of this stuff, and whatever they wrote down was, was the controlling thought of the day, or so it would seem. Well, what Shimei said was that something objectionable meant sexual immorality. In other words, the only reason for divorce that, that Skamay believed in the scripture was if someone had sexual intercourse with someone that they were not married to. Adultery. Not an affair, which is what we call things today, but adultery is what the biblical term for it is. Now, there was another teacher. That was that was the school of Skamay. The other teacher was Hillel. And Hillel was much, much looser on this question. Um, there were all of these writings, and I, and I laugh because it's just sad to me that that people who are supposed to be followers of God could come up with some of these reasons for divorce. So here are some of the things. Sub something objectionable, according to the school of Hillel, were things like, um, if she spoiled his dinner, I'm not making this up. If she spoiled his dinner, if she burned his soup, a husband could divorce her. If she spoke to a man in the streets, a husband could divorce her. If she walked around with her hair unbound, her husband could divorce her. If she argued, this one's just almost comical to me. If she argued in a voice loud enough to be heard in the house next door, then it was legal according to the thought of Hillel that, that the husband could divorce her. And this is the teaching. This was Rabbi Akiva, and his, here's what he said. And this is kind of scary if you're a lady. If a husband finds another woman more pleasing in appearance... He may divorce his wife. These were the teachings going on in that day. Um, and, and if you're just a guessing person, which side do you think was the more popular school of thought in Jesus' day? Now, not according to women, because women didn't have any rights there. According to men, which one are you going to lean towards? Come on. Which one's going to be more popular? Now, which school of thought does Jesus' response seem to put him in? The school of Skamay, which was very strict, or the school of Hillel, which was, you know, if you don't look good today, or if I find somebody looks better than you, which which side? Now, Jesus didn't take sides, but, but just from his response that we read, which one is he more closely aligned with? Skamay. All right, good. Y'all are, are with me. Now, it's going to get deep, so y'all need to hang on and, and stay awake today, please. Um, so here's the deal. When they're coming to him, they knew very clearly what the schools of thought were. And Jesus had already, in the Sermon on the Mount, he'd already made it very clear. That was in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, one of the, the most famous sermon in the history of, of the world and certainly of Christendom. Um, he'd already made it very clear his thoughts on divorce. And these Pharisees knew his thoughts on divorce. So what they were trying to force him to do was to come out publicly and say something that was very unpopular. Now, we got to back up in, in Matthew uh, 19, verse 1, because here's what it says. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. All right, now, we got a map here because we're going to go back to history class real quick. Pop that up there, Drew. There it is. Okay, now, I have my laser pointer, everybody say, ooh. 
We are not high tech, but we pretend to be. Okay, see, here's Galilee right up here. This is the Sea of Galilee. See that? This is the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea. What the verse 1 says is that Jesus left Galilee and he came over into this area, the area of Perea. Perea goes almost all the way from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. Now, this was calculated. They understood very clearly what they were questioning Jesus on because if you go back in, in earlier uh, parts of the New Testament, you'll see that this area of Perea was associated with the ministry of John the Baptist. He was out in the wilderness, and people would go out into the wilderness, said they would cross the Jordan, they would go out in the wilderness to see John the Baptist and hear his teachings. Now, if you remember your church history, your New Testament history, you know that John the Baptist, how did he die? He was beheaded. Do you remember by whom? This is a bonus question. Herod, yeah, there's a bunch of them. You just throw Herod out. You're pretty close. Herod Antipas, all right? Now, here's the deal. Herod Antipas, Antipas was king or tetrarch. He was actually tetrarch of this area, Perea, all the way up to Galilee. And so when Jesus goes across the river into Galilee, he's going into the area where John the Baptist had his head chopped off. You know why he had his head chopped off? All right, well, that's that's part of it. But there was a dancing woman that she danced, and, and he's drunk, and he says, oh, you're such a good dancer. This is not, uh, oh, I wish I were making that. He says, you're such a good dancer. I will give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. So this daughter of, of the wife that he's married to, his stepdaughter, she goes out and talks to her mom, and her mom says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So because he'd made this boast in front of all of his friends, Herodias, this, his, the, the stepdaughter, comes back to him and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And because he'd made the boast in front of everybody and he didn't want to lose face with all of his people, you know what Herod Antipas does? He has John the Baptist beheaded. Now, why did his, why did his wife want John the Baptist beheaded? Because John the Baptist had the audacity to walk around and say, the woman you're married to, it is not lawful for you to be married to. He dared to say, you're living in sin openly and honestly in front of everyone. He said, you are living in sin. And I'm going to show you why they were living in sin. She didn't like it. And so she had John the Baptist beheaded. Now, it's in that setting. You understand the, the, the severity of the question. You understand Jesus is treading on some very um, thin ice here where he is. This John the Baptist has been killed because he spoke out against their relationship. And uh, let's let's look at why. Now, some years earlier... Herod Antipas, now I told you he was a tetrarch, and that means there were three of them that actually had divided up the kingdom. So they weren't kings, they were tetrarchs, and he has some other brothers that are Herods as well. And so there is Philip, and he goes to visit his brother Philip, who is a tetrarch in another area. And while he's there, he becomes infatuated with a woman named Herodias, and he proposed to her. There were a couple of problems with this proposal. The first is Herod Antipas was already married. You shouldn't propose to another woman when you're already married. That's that's helpful advice. Herodias, the one that he proposed to, was also married to Herod's brother, Philip. Okay, the, the plot thickens. She was also the daughter of Herod Antipas' other brother, actually a half-brother. So here's what he was saying. When he proposed to her, he was saying, in effect, if we get married, you can be my niece and my wife and my ex-sister-in-law, and we can move to Arkansas and live in a trailer. Um... They each divorced their spouse. Um, this is weird stuff. You can't make it up. Truth is stranger than fiction. They each divorced their spouse so they can marry each other. And the bottom line is Herod Antipas and Herodias are committing adultery and everyone knows it. John the Baptist dared to speak out against it and it cost him his life. 
So the Pharisees, very calculated. They understood where they were. They understood the political climate. They wanted someone to take Jesus out. So when they come to him, not only does Jesus not duck the question, he goes out of his way to get in trouble. He says this, if a woman divorces her husband. Now, in Jewish law, is it is it permissible for a woman to divorce her husband? No, but in Roman society, it is. So when Jesus is, is mentioning if a woman divorces her husband, he's drawing the picture real plain, plainly in front of him. He's saying, not only was John the Baptist right, you can chop off all the heads you want, but this woman and this man are living in sin. It's adultery. Let me draw this picture great big for everybody. Jesus steps out on some really thin ice. He said, Herod's wrong. Herodias is wrong. It doesn't matter whose head you chop off. You are still wrong. That's not God's plan for marriage. And then he does something that was really um, out of the ordinary for a rabbi, for a major teacher. And, and here's what he does. He doesn't go back to, to Deuteronomy 24.1, which I told you is the main text in the Old Testament. Every teacher in the Jewish community went back to, to Deuteronomy 24.1. Jesus doesn't go back there for his proof that divorce is wrong. He goes back to Genesis. He goes back to the beginning, to, to creation. And he says, haven't you read? I love how Jesus, and, and actually, you didn't want to question Jesus because he would come back with a question and he'd make you look dumb because, like, you know, he's God's son and he knows everything. And God, you're just dumb if you come. So he, he turns the question back. Haven't you read at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is saying... Um, what is God's original intent for marriage? It's, it's not this Deuteronomy 24 or one thing. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden when he saw one thing that was not good in the Garden of Eden. That was that man was alone. So what does he do? He creates a, a helper. And that doesn't mean someone lower than him. It means a rescuer for this state of affairs. God saw what Adam needed. He provided that in Eve. He saw what Eve needed. He provided that in Adam. And he said God's original intention for marriage is that it be with one man, one woman, forever, permanent oneness. And so now the Pharisees, they're in this debate. They're still trying to trap Jesus, and they think, oh, we got him. He skipped Deuteronomy 24.1. He went back to the wrong passage. We've got him now. And so they say, oh, they just couldn't wait for this response. So they said in the next part, verse 7, why then did Moses command, all right, notice the, the verb there. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus' response, because you don't jack with the Son of God, look what he says, Moses Permitted. He changed the verb. Moses didn't command divorce. A lot of people come up and say, I have grounds for divorce. I am getting divorced. The Bible says I have to divorce. No, it does not. The Bible says it permits divorce in certain instances. And we're going to see why. Jesus says Moses didn't command. He permitted you divorce to divorce your wives. Why? Because you're what? If you're looking at your, your verses there, because what? Your hearts are hard. Ah, oh, dang, come the Son of God just cuts through everything and He reveals our motives. We're hard-hearted. That's why we get divorces. This is because the heart, which God intended to be tender and soft towards one another, has gotten hard and rigid and cold. The real problem that Moses was addressing, he wasn't commanding divorce. He was giving some uh, guidelines to govern what was already going on because people's hearts had gotten hard. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, when God created 
Adam, and then when he created Eve, he, he made this relationship where when you have sexual intercourse, it is the deepest connection you can have physically. But let me tell you something. There is no such thing as casual sex. I see that on the movies and I just go, you're a moron. There's no such thing as casual sex because God designed us not only as physical beings, but spiritual beings. And when you connect one physically in the sexual relationship, there is a deep emotional bond and everyone you've ever had sex with then you are giving part of your heart and your soul to that person because I can tell you this, you never forget. And the more sexual partners that you have, the more you take into bed with your new partner, it's, it's in your head because God designed us that way. And that's why, not because God's a prude. Um, years ago, uh, Roger Staubach was, was interviewed. This was, this was hilarious to me. He was interviewed, and this was way back when you didn't talk about sex on TV. This was, you know, in the early 70s, and um, it was just beginning to come on TV. Now it's everywhere. But he was he was interviewed after a game. You know, America's team, captain comeback, and he's, he's interviewed. And for some reason, the woman interviewer says, how does it feel when you see Joe Namath, who was sex with anybody? He said, how do you feel when, when Joe Namath just has all of this sex and you're married? Roger, I wish I could see this. I read about it in the book. Roger goes, um, well, I have just as much sex. I have confidence that I have just as much sex as Joe Namath does. I just do it with one woman. You see, what God did in marriage was he provided for our needs. When God says no to you, premarital sex and extramarital sex, when God says no, it's not to be restrictive. It's to protect you from all the junk that you could get but it's also to protect your soul, your heart, and to provide this environment where you can thrive and be loved and love. It is the highest attainment. That's why he went back to the Garden of Eden and said, this is God's original intent for marriage, not this stuff that's out here. The reason you have divorce is because your hearts are hard. And many couples have experienced this. During courtship days, everything we do for her is a privilege. You vacuum the floors and it's a privilege. You go off to school and she lives on the second floor and you'll carry a piano I've done that, up to the second floor and it's a privilege. And when you're courting and you, you propose, everything you do for her is a privilege and then you get married. And six months later, you know, she comes in. She says, I'd like to try the sofa in the den. And he's like, okay, could you wait until halftime and then I'll switch to the lazy boy and you can carry it yourself. You know, something happens when we get married and, and our hearts get hard. Instead of seeking to serve the other person, I, I want to serve me and I want to magnify the problems the other person has. And And one of the... One of the biggest excuses we use, we humans use for, for getting a divorce is, well, I married the wrong person. And I know I'm, I'm again, treading on thin ice, but we say, I'm normal, but I married somebody who's not normal. And Jesus says, you know what's really behind the problem in human relationships, especially in marriage, is hard hearts. And hard-hearted people have a hard time getting along with other people. 
And so this brings up a really, really serious question. Is divorce ever permitted? Not commanded, is it permitted? And the answer is yes. This is on your listening guide. One situation where it's permitted is right here in verse 9, Matthew 19, 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this is on your listening guide. I want you to circle that phrase, marital unfaithfulness. Now, that's, again, vague, and so there's been all kinds of speculation about it. So let's do a little exercise. And by the way, if you go to small groups today, you're going to get to, to talk a little bit more about this exercise. Um, number one, is flirting with someone that's not your spouse marital unfaithfulness? Number two, emails. Yeah, y'all. Email, and even if you think it's not, you're going to say yes because we're in church. Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit, and yes is the right answer. Um, number two, emails containing personal information sent to someone of the opposite sex. Is that marital unfaithfulness? You don't have to answer out loud. Worse. Number three, working alone with the opposite sex, with or without your spouse's knowledge. Number four, looking at the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, Victoria's Secret Catalog, J.C. Penney Catalog. Is that marital unfaithfulness? Number five, online chat rooms. <laughs> we'll not testify to that. Um, number six, viewing pornography. Number seven, hugging or touching someone of the opposite sex. Number eight, kissing, caressing, everything but sexual intercourse with someone that's not your spouse. Is that marital unfaithfulness? And here's the bonus question. Would your spouse say if you did those things, it's marital unfaithfulness? The word for marital unfaithfulness here is pornea. What does that sound remarkably close to? Pornography. And that's where we get our word, pornography. It is not the term for adultery. Um, it is a term that means more than just sexual intercourse. It could refer to lots of sexual immorality. And this is, this is real important because a lot of people play games with this. And they say, um, as long as I don't have sexual intercourse uh, outside of marriage, then I haven't sinned. So let's be real, real clear. Let's lay it out here, what this could be. This could be ongoing, unrepentant, defiant involvement in pornography. The behavior that Jesus addresses here could involve different types of sexually inappropriate actions with someone other than your spouse. I know people who've had emotional affairs, and it was almost as devastating as if they had had a physical sexual relationship with someone not their spouse. When it came to light, it devastated the spouse and the family. Now, the reason we've got to limit ourselves is for the sake of our spouses and our families. Here would be a good guide. You want to know how far is too far? And by the way, we're going to blow that question out of the water the next four weeks. So I hope you'll come back because I'm going to teach you how to discern God's will in any situation that, that you come across. That may sound arrogant. It didn't start with me. I got this from a pastor that I respect. And, and when I apply this question that I'm going to teach you over the next four weeks, it foolproofs. If you'll answer it honestly, it will foolproof your decision-making. And so you'll stop asking how far is too far. Um, you'll, you'll ask a different question. But a lot of people play games with this question. So here's a good guide. Anything that you would not want projected on this screen, any activity that you don't want up here right now on a Sunday morning would be something that you should not be involved in, whether it's 
emails to someone of the opposite sex, whether it's chat rooms and the things that you're saying to someone of the opposite sex. If that is something you don't want up on the screen, then hello, that is something you don't need to be involved in. We've got to put limits on ourselves. Now, before you run out and get a divorce because you say, oh, pastor said, here's some things that I can get a divorce for. Let's look at God's heart on the matter. Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Is that vague? It's pretty clear. He hates it. You know why he hates it? Because of the pain that it causes his children. And if you have children because of the pain, it causes your children. Um. Divorce was never God's intent. But he does say in cases of sexual immorality, it may be that divorce becomes the only alternative. And here's where you got to be careful. Uh, because we don't have a formula where we can put in everything that your spouse or someone else's spouse... There's no formula in the pages of Scripture where you plug it all in and it spits out divorce or not divorce. Because it may be that someone may have one episode of sexual immorality and be broken over it and they may come back and genuinely want to get right with God and with their spouse and with other people at their church. They may want to confess that and move on. And, and they want to do whatever they can to be restored. In such a case, it is possible that they might have committed sexual immorality, but it still would be wrong to divorce them because the heart has changed. You see where we're going with this? Hard hearts, it may be that the only option is divorce because the heart is so hard and nobody's going to repent and nobody's going to change. But it might be. See how it goes a case-to-case basis. You may have to apply this. And, and I would tell you, don't apply it by yourself. Get together with, with a trusted pastor or elders or a small group and, and say, I, I'm struggling and I don't know what to do. Help me with this and walk in community till you come up with this answer. Now, let's quickly mention one other uh, situation where a spouse's behavior maybe it's not commanded that you divorce, but it may be that divorce is the only alternative. If you fast forward over to First Corinthians, um, Paul is speaking in this chapter about marriage, and he says, "As a general rule, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, they should stay in the marriage." Um, but he gives this he gives another behavior that could be grounds for divorce. First Corinthians seven fifteen. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. What that means is not bound means, in other words, you would be free to remarry and you would not be guilty in God's eyes. There would be freedom there to remarry. This is divorce on the grounds of, in case of desertion. And Paul here refers specifically to unbelievers. If a, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, which is against the Scripture, by the way, that's forbidden in Scripture, and, and if you if you disobeyed Scripture, then then you're going to suffer some consequences. But if a believer is married to an unbeliever, some people now, here's here's again, you can't be legalistic and say this one, yes, this one, no. This, this is difficult and you can't apply a one mold fits all situation here. Some people show by their actions, by their lives, that they are not believers. They are not Christ followers regardless of what their words say. Here's what we're, we're going to define desertion, desertion here. Desertion? Desertion is defined as behavior equivalent to the abandonment of the marriage relationship. It is possible that someone is still under the same roof with their spouse, maybe only for financial reasons, but has abandoned the marriage in every way, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and they are only playing games with geography. That's equivalent to abandonment of the relationship. 
And, and let me just stop and say this. I think that Christians for a long time have, have misused the idea of, uh, of submission to protect people who are in physically abusive relationships. Here's, here, I'm saying this and I believe that, that I, I have scriptural grounds. If you're in a physically abusive relationship, get out. Do not stay, regardless of what some well-meaning Christian who has not walked in your shoes says, get out, get at a distance, and if, only if, that spouse becomes willing to go to counseling, you separate physically so that they can no longer abuse you physically, and then if, maybe, they want to go through counseling, you might take it one step at a time from there, but get away, do not stay in a dangerous relationship. And, and you again, do not be uh, legalistic or mechanical about it. Um, you can't say things like, well, my spouse doesn't talk to me enough, so they've abandoned me. No, we're talking about willful, deliberate, unrepentant, hard-hearted, clear-cut abandonment of the relationship and a decision to lead a totally separate life. And in this case, Paul says, the believer is not bound. In other words, they are free to remarry. But here's the key. When you remarry, it's only in the Lord. That means only to a Christian. Only to another Christ follower. And, and let me just tell you a prescription for failure in your next marriage. You marry someone who only says they're a Christian, or you marry someone who's not a believer, you're going to be right back at the same situation you were before. Every divorce is a product of two sinners, and that's true because every marriage is the product of two sinners. That's just the plain truth about us. And no matter what the other party did, no matter what percentage of mess is on them, if there has not been time for self-reflection and for learning and submitting before God and saying, God, I'm not going to move forward until you heal me, you are not ready for another marriage. Am I clear? And I think that, that that scripture backs that up. I read an article uh, from a study called, Does Divorce Make People Happy? And this blows my mind. Here's what the study found. Nearly 80%, so 8 out of 10 couples who rated themselves as very unhappy in their relationship, but they stayed together. Five years later, five years later, they rated themselves as very happy. Because a lot of times what makes us very unhappy is a season of life. There's a big difference between a season of life and a way of life. Seasons have beginnings and ends. Ways of life don't. And you see again, it's hard-heartedness that causes us to play games and say, oh, this is a way of life. He hadn't talked to me in two days. I'm divorcing him. Come on. We're deeper than that. We don't need to play games with this. The other side of this study was they um, talked to spouses who considered themselves very unhappily married, and they went ahead and got a divorce and had to go through custody battles and hardships and loneliness and future romantic disappointments and so on. 19% of them said five years later that they were very happily married. So the idea that divorce is the ticket to happiness, you're just setting yourself up for enormous disappointment. 
there are times when it seems like a marriage is hopeless. And, and one of the things that I pray often and that I say to folks in counseling is um, you need a resurrection. And the only power that I know of that has brought something back to life is described in the pages of this book. And in Ephesians, it says that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is available to Christ followers. There are marriages that need resurrection. But I also know that it takes two people to make a marriage. And just because one of you wants a resurrection does not mean that the other wants a resurrection. Now, Here's, here's the key, and this is what I want you to take out of here today. Jesus comes along and he says, at the beginning, this divorce thing was not what God intended for marriage. It's never been God's heart. At the beginning, there was this tender heart between a man and a woman. And not only were, were they one sexually, but they were one emotionally and, and spiritually as well. But Jesus says something in the book of Ezekiel. And if you don't know where that is, it's in the Old Testament. Ezekiel was one of the prophets. And, and God said through Ezekiel to the people of Israel, the followers of God, He said, there will be a day when I will come and I will remove your heart of stone. Sounds like a hard heart. I will take that heart of stone out and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. He says, someday in the future, there's going to be this reality where hearts can be transformed, where they can be resurrected, and they can go back to like God intended them to be. Somewhere in the future, that's going to happen. That's what Ezekiel says. And then Jesus comes along. And you know what? Jesus, when he recognizes the fulfillment of that promise to Ezekiel in the Old Testament, you know, when, when he's saying it's going to happen, Jesus is saying, now, because I'm here, because I'm giving my life, and because I will cleanse you from sin, now the reality is possible for the old heart to be removed and a new heart to be put in there. Now is the time that God promised to Ezekiel. And when people get rid of their hard hearts and they have their tender flesh hearts, put in they change and the kingdom of God breaks out and that's what the church is supposed to be about Christians divorce just as much as non-Christians actually Christians divorce more part of that is because uh, non-Christians do the the cohabitation thing, and then when they split up, that's not counted as a, as a divorce statistic. The reason divorce is rampant is because our hearts are hard. And Jesus says, the question is, <laughs> it's, it is for you and it is for me. Will I submit to what God says? Will I say, God, your kingdom come in my heart, in my life, in my marriage? in my singleness, in my divorce life. Will you say that to God? If that's true, then God can give you a new heart. And you may even say today, God, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to do, but I'll be patient. I will not do something stupid that I can't undo. I will be part of a Christian community. I'll open my life and my heart to trusted Christian brothers and sisters, and I'll pray but I'm not going to do something stupid. I'll seek to have my mind renewed by your word. God, your will be done in my life as confusing as it is. So that's that's what I'm going to 
ask you to consider doing today. To say to God, I don't know what you want me to do, but here I am. I will submit to you. Would you bow your heads for just a moment?